This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. What kind of relationship do Americans have with their churches? Well, there's some new Barna research that has come out on that subject, and it reveals some important information about church going and its potential future. So we're going to tackle that today with Sam Rohr, president of American Pastors Network and Pennsylvania Pastors Network. Sam is also co-host of APN's national radio program, Stand in the Gap Today. Sam, so great to talk to you again. How are you? Janet, I am doing great, thank you, and it's great to be with you again. Well, I'll put the question to you. What kind of relationship do Americans have with their churches? What would you have said about that prior to seeing this research, just out of curiosity? You know what, Janet? Uh, I would say that the report does not surprise me. Hmm. Um, I have felt for a long time, because of other evidences, that, uh, that uh, the increasing relationship of those who would uh, qualify themselves as Christians, and we'll, we can talk about that later because that's a bigger group than true believers. Yes, but for a long time has been increasingly more social, perhaps in purpose, than worshipful, with a goal of holy living as a goal. That has uh, more of a smorgasbord approach to church. I think we've been seeing for a long time. And I think what this uh, most recent Barnum Group research would indicate is they've tended to quantify that to a great deal. Right. Now, when you are talking about church becoming more social than worshipful as it was in the past, to what do you generally attribute that? Is it the fact that we have churches that are more entertainment centers sometimes and, and more casual in terms of interaction with people who visit? Or what is the reason, would you say, or what are the reasons for this more social church version that we're seeing? Well, I think uh, in in some regards, it's been uh, a cultivated relationship, meaning uh, the entire uh, seeker movement uh, as a whole, we refer to as as churches reaching out, um, making the, uh, uh, putting up the the uh, some have McDonald's in their churches or uh, the the social the the coffee and all that, which is nothing wrong with that, but those kinds of things have tended to gear towards come and make people feel comfortable within the walls of our church and and stay away from any of those things that are would appear to be quote unquote offensive right that would perhaps drive away people and that's been linked then in many cases in many cases to uh, the message the pulpit message that has been delivered uh, we know from George Barna research was, uh, of, of a couple years ago that that when you only have nine percent of those in the pulpit, and that includes evangelicals that would be in that category, that for instance in the past year preached a sermon on uh, the biblical model for marriage as an example, and 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 
completely stayed away from anything talking about human sexuality, LGBT movement, and so forth, completely staying away from it because it is offensive, <sighs> it tends to follow in the same track. And, and I think as a result of it, we perhaps have almost trained a group of people, perhaps our younger people, to expect things other than what the preaching of the Word should do, and that is to challenge us in our relationship with Christ, and then secondarily in our walk with God. Yeah. And uh, I think these things have tracked and gone along one with the other. Oh man, there's so much to talk about here. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Barna research, because one of the big findings, and this was the one that I really honed in on when I read this the first time, was that nearly two in five churchgoers report regularly attending multiple churches. So two in five go to multiple churches. What should we know about that, Sam? Is that I go somewhere in the morning and I go to an evening service somewhere else, or I, I live in two places, I have a summer home, so I go to two churches. But what do we know about this particular trend? Uh, well, I think, I think in reality, this plus, I think what we have sensed is that it's not, it's not morning and evening, because in reality, we know that most churches, <laughs> the majority, majority perhaps, don't even have an evening service. Yeah, I'm dating myself, aren't um, I? <laughs> I really so, am. So they're not going morning and evening. They're, they are going to two different churches. And uh, some of these other numbers would indicate that the normal attendance at church is like 2.4 times uh, a month. So they are splitting. They're splitting churches if they are, in fact, going every Sunday. And I think that kind of, again ties back into the, the purpose for which I go as a person and what I am expecting when I get there, and that's a part of other what the uh, research brings out. So it's, uh, it's very clearly uh, indicating um, uh, a lack of commitment, a lack of sense of identification with this particular church family as a family, and uh, back into a little bit of what I often refer to as a smorgasbord approach uh, to truth. You kind of pick and choose what you want depending upon where you are. And that, I think, is factoring into this. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because they divide them between churched adults and practicing Christians. I guess that would be the distinction to which you referred earlier, Christians versus true believers. Is that what you're getting from this as well? Well, it is, and, I, and again, I, I, I tie this back into this, that when we get into this category, again, I'll go back to George Barna research. George, uh, of a, two years ago, did a very extensive survey where he identified that uh, the numbers were like 74% of all Americans classify themselves as Christians. Now, we all know that that's not possible. Otherwise, you would see a different America. Right. But when he began to off, uh, walk into the questions of what do you perceive about um, Jesus Christ, and 50% of that number would say and did say that, for instance, Jesus Christ did, did not live an entirely, totally sinless, earthly life. Ugh. And about 54% of that number then would say that the Holy Spirit and the devil are conceptual. They're not real persons. And 50% or so say the, the Bible is God's Word, but it's not all true. And you begin to factor those things into it. Even those who said that about 50% of that number said they had a relationship with Christ, you would assume that that would say born again. But then when you work in these other questions, you say, well, how's it possible? Can you really be born again if you don't believe that Jesus Christ lived a totally 
sinless earthly life or that the Holy Spirit uh, and the devil are not real persons, can one have and exhibit true faith? Well, when you walk those all down, you're down to below 10% (laughs) of those who started out saying they're Christians to those who would evidence manifestation of the actual uh, elements of truth that would say, yeah, no, you are a true believer. So within the Barna group research we're talking about here, I think with even within that group practicing Christians, 72%, uh, and so forth, you are finding even within that group some that are reflected in the research I just went through that, went through that would say they may be faithfully going, but they may, they're, they're not necessarily exhibiting the true elements of true faith. And then that begins to tie in with both attendance, expectations for what you get when you go, and, and that type of thing. Yeah, you always end up having to break down some of these numbers into numbers that really reflect the people we're interested in, primarily finding out if Bible-believing Christians are you know, failing in this area or exceeding in this area or, or what have you. And I think this gets back to the problem, Sam, of experiential Christianity. You know, I had a born-again experience or I had a, a shiver, you know, liver shiver in church one Sunday. And, and, and if you're walking around having had that experience, but yet denying the fundamental of the faith, it really is impossible to say for sure that you are actually a Christian because truth and experience cannot be separated. They both have to be under the authority of God's Word. Well, they absolutely do, and that's what the book of James, James talks about, not just uh, believing but doing. Uh, the Apostle John in uh, 1 John is very, very clear in that that one's true relationship as Christ is, is evidenced by by love, but love is proven by obedience. Yes. So when we back it up and say, right, what determines whether a person's faith in Christ is really true, it's going to be backed up all the way to obedience, and that's where measurement can really begin. Very good. Well, Sam Rohrer with us from American Pastors Network. We're going to come back talking about this Barna research on five trends defining Americans' relationship to churches. We'll be right back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Bible League on Stand With Them, Bibles for the Persecuted Church. Paul reminded Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is defined as suffering for the sake of Christ and His glory, and it comes in many forms all over the world. In India, it's being shunned by Hindu family members. In China, it's the loss of church buildings. In the Middle East, it could be jail or even death at the hands of extremists. Isaiah is a new Christian praying for the nourishment that comes only from God's Word. Send him a Bible for only $5. $100 sends Bibles to 20 Christians, and a limited-time match will double your gift. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted believers. All you have to do is call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. 
the healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you here. It's great to have Sam Rohrer here. He's president of American Pastors Network and co-host of the great national radio program Stand in the Gap today. You can find out more at AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. And Sam and I have been talking about the new Barna research that talks about five trends defining Americans' relationship to churches. Another one of these trends, Sam, involves churchgoers who are divided on the value of church. And David Kinneman, who is the president of Barna, had this to say, Those who frequent worship services do so largely because of personal enjoyment, but many churchgoers also readily admit that they believe people are tired of church as usual. Now, my first reaction to that was to laugh a little bit because I said, we we have spent most of my lifetime with churches trying to adjust away from church as usual. And it just kind of shows the folly of trying to mix up church as usual constantly actually having a lasting effect on people. What was your reaction to this finding? Well, when I looked at it, I kind of laughed the same way to some extent, because I always look and say, right now, what do we mean by church as usual? Yeah. Um, in, in reality, I think for a long time, we have had church, we've had, we've had a, how can I say it, we've had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. Amen. Um, we've had churches meeting, but not necessarily equipping their people as in discipleship, which is what the Great Commission is all about. And the focus has for a long time, it hasn't yet recent, we've moved away from the definition and the defining of what it means to be a true Christian, of holiness, which is exactly when we come before God in worship, we have to come with holy hands. We have to come with a heart that is clean. And those are all things that factor into, well, how do we know if we have clean hearts or clean hands? Um, do we, you know, we haven't been taught for a long time that, that uh, coming to God in prayer is a privilege that we have, but there are requirements that God puts before us that if we come to Him in prayer, if we come with, a, with iniquity in our heart, Psalm 66, or we don't pray in faith believing, as, as what the Lord Himself said, to uh, praying in accordance to God's will, to, as James says, praying amiss because we consume it upon our, our, our selfish lust. Those requirements, if we don't know that God has requirements for how we approach Him, we may go through the motions of prayer, but never experience the power of prayer, or never even reach the heart of God because we've not cared really what He said. I think we've, for a long time, Janet, I think we have been, we've had an American 
church, uh, Christians in America who, who, have, who have experienced the blessings of God, and we have, yep. but I think we've gotten soft, and I think we've, we've taken the concept of plenty and prosperity, which is a blessing of God in this country, and we have we've felt we've been able to pick and to choose what we want, will do or what we won't do, and the difficult parts of uh, living a life of Christian discipline, we've said, it's a little bit too hard, I'll drop that off, and pursued that which is easy. And I think that factors into why we see people going to church. If the goal is personal enjoyment, which is what you just said, uh, Brother Kinnaman mentioned, or uh, those kinds of goals, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up looking more like those the Scripture talks about in the end days, want to have their ears tickled, yes, rather right. than to be moved in their heart by conviction by the Holy Spirit through strong preaching from God's Word. I think these things all are wrapping and in, in, in fitting together. I think that's really well said. Sam, the other thing that, that crossed my mind was when you bring up a phrase like church as usual, and you're right, we don't exactly know what that means, but isn't that very phrase negating the continuity of Christianity through the centuries that in, in many, many ways the church doesn't change. We are still saved by grace through faith alone because of what Christ did for us and his death, burial and resurrection, that we still worship God and pray to God and fellowship with one another the way the apostles did. I mean, if we really throw church up in the air and make it not church as usual, everything could go and you could just start over and maybe have hamburgers for communion. I mean, what do you, wh- why can't we have church as it has been done through the centuries? Isn't that part of the benefit of Christianity that it doesn't change, that Christianity and, and Christ himself does not change? I, I think you're so very, very correct. And I think when, I, when you say that, Janet, I think in terms of what we have done to the whole concept of absolute truth in our culture— We've attempted to take and redefine that which is right and that which is wrong, that which is acceptable, that which is unacceptable, in the eyes of our culture or in our own mind, rather than saying, what does God establish as the standard? God is truth. God's Word is the truth. We don't know truth outside God's Word. And if if we approach any matter of culture... Uh, whether it be the definition of the family, whether it be the definition of human sexuality, whether it be the definition of what is righteous government. Uh, Take anything that you want. If we define it other than what God has defined the family to be as man and woman and children and and human sexuality as male and female, and as we talk about uh, and define government and the purposes there, if we fail to define what should be, should be, and define that biblically, we're into this whole arena where anything goes and and what is right or what is wrong is in the eyes of the beholder. As a culture, that's where we've moved. And we've been, and we've been, this whole concept has been endorsed, as we know, by the courts of our land and by the legislature, the Congress in many cases, or again, who are redefining God's view of marriage, God's view of what is life, God's view of what is human sexuality, and the Church has bought into a lot of this. And That's I really right. believe uh, it's in part because, again, Barnard Research, we know that less than 30% of the pulpits of America, and that includes those who say they're evangelical, less than 30% actually believe in the authority of Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that none of the others ever have the Bible in their hand, 
But what it does mean is that they have placed themselves above God's Word and that they have set themselves up as determining what is appropriate to preach and what may be offensive to preach. And as a result, we have made church now no longer intended as God, as God designed to be God's church, to raise the standard, to set the pattern, to get people before the gospel, have them saved, and have them discipled, and to live a disciplined, holy life. It's only that kind of living that sets the world on fire like the early church did, and it's only that kind of Christian living that really makes a difference in the culture. That's what we need, but we've gotten away from it, because ultimately I think we've walked away from God's Word as the final determiner of truth and the pattern for life and living. I know. I totally agree with everything you just said there. Well, well said, Sam. That was excellent. You know, one other thing that that I wanted to get to before we run out of time was uh, another one of these trends that Barna has mentioned. Church membership is still a common practice and is correlated with positive outcomes, but its importance is declining among younger churchgoers. And again, commensurate with further Barna research that's been done on biblical worldviews and how they go down if you do the stair step from generation to generation. I guess this isn't surprising, but why does it matter? Why do you think it matters that younger churchgoers are not showing the allegiance to churches through membership that their forebears tended to do in greater numbers? I think it's for two reasons. One, I think there's a cultural impact because the culture as a whole, the millennials on down, have walked away from any kind of um, faithful engagement with the concept of duty and responsibility. I mean, just take it to the broader context. The Lions clubs and the Rotary clubs, the social clubs of the past, can't, they're, not, they're, they're not maintaining their membership with younger people because the younger people aren't committing themselves to anything. And I think that as a cultural thing stems also from those within the church. Now, whether the culture comes into the church or whether the church has failed, and I think it's both in part, the church has failed to indicate that a disciplined Christian life is a matter of predictable consistency and holy living proven out by an obedience to God's Word. That obedience and consistency is what produces a sense of duty and responsibility and faithfulness to God's Word because it comes right out of God's Word. That's how God's going to judge us ultimately. Good and faithful, uh, you know, know, well done, good and faithful servant is what I want to hear. But that faithfulness to God will also be faithfulness to God's commands, and one of them is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Uh, So these things all wrap up into place, but it comes back ultimately the pulpit is not preaching, I don't believe, faithfulness and the importance of adherence to God's Word and that obedience in our living is going to be evidenced by our obedience to God's Word. And if we do, we will be faithful, we will be consistent to our families, to our children, to our employer, as a citizen, and certainly as a member of our local church. Right. You know, I was thinking, too, when you see all these scandals in the headlines about sexual abuse in churches or about scandals in the ministry and, and this one was arrested and this one had a, an affair and this kind of thing, that also has something of an effect and, and I think sometimes can create stereotypes in the minds of maybe younger people as well. Well, you know, you look at these surveys showing respect for different categories of people in societal life and the clergy keeps going down on the list. My that also have something to do with it? And could that also be something that should convict pastors that, you know, we need to make sure that there is a respect in the church for Christian service and Christian ministry as well, that that might be a help? 
I think there is no doubt about it. I think that when you look at the millennials in Generation Z, part of the reason they say, what is the value of church? What is the value of uh, going to church or whatever? They will point to the fact of saying, we haven't seen any authenticity. That's what they'll say. Meaning that in their parents, maybe they saw someone who went to church on Sunday, but they saw them live like the world and fight like cats and dogs at home. And, and, And the pulpit not wanting to offend, haven't really been speaking about don't fight at home. And fathers and mothers, this is what you need to do. It's all been kind of wrapped up because culturally I think we've moved away, be it the pulpit or the pews. There's been a movement of the whole away from attention to God's Word. Yep. And the young people see it, and if that's the way the Christianity they see, well, what do they need that for? Yeah, AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. Check it out. Sam Rohrer from the American Pastors Network. Always good to chat with you, Sam. Thanks for being with us, and we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters now. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, we are excited, and the reason we're excited is because we serve a mighty God who is sovereign, who is not surprised by anything that's going on right now. And we can rejoice because we know how the story ends. And that is a great comfort in the midst of a panic. And I'm going to get into more on that. There's a lot to report to you today. But one of the things that we're really excited about here at Janet Mefford today is our partnership with Bible League. And the reason we're excited about this is because we think one of the most important things in the whole world is to get Bibles into the hands of new Christians and people who don't yet know the Lord. How many people throughout history have come to know Jesus? Jesus Christ because they read the Bible. And we can't lose sight of important things like this, important tasks like this, getting the Word of God into the hands of people who desperately need a Bible. We take for granted the fact that we have multiple Bibles on our shelves, but there are a lot of new believers. This is what's exciting, what the Lord is doing in places like Asia and the Middle East and Latin America, Africa, Europe. Bible League is at work there, working with these new believers, putting them through a Bible study in their own language. And at the end of the study that they do with these people, they say, we will give you a Bible. Well, that's where we come in for $5. Only $5 you can put a Bible into the hands of a new believer in Jesus Christ. We are trying to get 1,200 Bibles into the hands of these persecuted Christians around the world. And we would ask you if you would consider and pray about helping support Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles, and a gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles in the language of these new Christians. So if you can help, all you need to do is call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-937-9673, but we like to simplify it, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com, and we'll be telling you a lot more about the great work of Bible League and what you are helping to accomplish in these areas of the world in the coming days. In the meantime, 800-YES-WORD, if you can help put Bibles into the hands of persecuted Christians, we would be so, so grateful to you. Now, let's move on to some of the news of the day. 
I have to talk a little bit about a story that's been circulating. I, I didn't talk about it yesterday, although I knew about it because I wanted to go through and listen to some of the audio from this event that took place back in October of 2019. As Futurism.com had reported, it was then that a group of 15 business people, government officials and health experts gathered around a table in New York to plan out the global response to a worldwide outbreak of a never-before-seen coronavirus. Now, there are people who have said they knew about this coronavirus in October of 2019. Well, coronavirus they were using just as a general term. But what's interesting to me is when you listen to the audio, and there is some audio online from this gathering, which was put on by the Johns Hopkins, well, there were various entities that were involved in this, but there were all sorts of different people. The Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, the fictional coronavirus at the center of the event 201 simulation was called CAPS. And listen to this. It started with pigs in Brazil before spreading to farmers, not unlike how the real coronavirus that we're struggling with now reportedly began with animals before spreading to people. And if you go back into some of the news reports on the coronavirus, it was December 31st that China first alerted the World Health Organization to several cases of unusual pneumonia in Wuhan. So that's when it became available. But how creepy is that, that it just happened two months after they gathered? Now, there are people who are taking this event and immediately concluding these globalists knew all about it. These globalists planned this. That had something to do with where we are now. They're taking advantage of the situation. I can't speak to the issue of whether or not they're taking advantage of us. I think as time goes along here, we'll be able to more clearly ascertain whether or not this is a complete overreaction or if it was a necessary step to take in order to control the coronavirus or if there was any angle to the Trump, you know, being derailed and trying to bring him down. You know, lots of people are saying lots of things and I don't want to be irresponsible in any of it. Nevertheless, when I listen to some of the audio from one of the clips that was put online, I'm not worried so much about what those people knew specifically. I don't think they necessarily knew anything about the current coronavirus at that time. But I found the comments, some of the comments that were revealed in this audio to be troubling as we are now in the throes of this coronavirus pandemic that is inconveniencing and perhaps making bankrupt many, many people around the world. I want to play for you a little cut from it. Let's listen first to cut one. It began in healthy-looking pigs months, perhaps years ago. A new coronavirus spread silently within herds. Gradually, farmers started getting sick. Infected people got a respiratory illness with symptoms ranging from mild flu-like signs to severe pneumonia. The sickest required intensive care. Many died. Experts agree, unless it is quickly controlled, it could lead to a severe pandemic, an outbreak that circles the globe and affects people everywhere. The mission of the Pandemic Emergency Board is to provide recommendations to deal with the major global challenges arising in response to an unfolding pandemic. The board is comprised of highly experienced leaders from business, public health, and civil society. We could be looking at double the number of cases in one week and 16 times as many in a month if we are not able to stop the spread. That would be on the order of half a million cases, and it would continue to rise exponentially. In three months, we could be approaching 10 million cases. We're at the start of what's looking like it will be a severe pandemic. 
And there are problems emerging that can only be solved by global business and governments working together. All right. You heard some of the voices of people involved there, people from Johns Hopkins, for example. And uh, uh, granted, this is all fictional. This is a, 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 an exercise, a pandemic tabletop exercise. And they're thinking through some of the problems. What would you do if you had a pandemic and you had millions of people who died within the course of three months? Well, nobody wants that. Here are the current facts on the coronavirus from this live website. 179,536 total confirmed cases. And that's since December 31st. So already you're almost at the three-month mark with this one. It's hundred and about 180,000 people around the world. 7,073 have died. 6,481 are serious cases. Listen to this one. 78,000 people have experienced a total recovery. A total recovery. 133 countries out of 195 have been infected. And these numbers are changing all the time. So when you're hearing me, there may be different numbers. But that's where you begin with this. And so let's go and listen to some of the other comments. This is cut two. So the policy crisis in question for this board in this meeting is this. How should governments, business, and international organizations allocate and distribute pandemic antivirals and medical supplies to the people who need the most. So having a centralized mechanism, so financially financially able to procure on behalf of affected countries okay. would be critical. I think the second thing, the second thing is um, it's going to be very important that for the business sector, for manufacturers of anti antivirals, that we have clarity around what the need is and where the need is and who are making the decisions. I think that given that uh, the countries most affected are those that are low and middle income countries with unequal access to technology, to, to finances, uh, the UN has a, a worldwide uh, footprint, universally uh, recognized and uh, universal membership. All right. The last voice you heard there was from Sophia Borges from the UN Foundation. Now, did you catch her comments? This will hit the lower and maybe middle income countries hardest. Here's what concerns me a little bit. The mentality. I don't think there's any necessary, necessarily a direct connection between this pandemic exercise and what we're going through now. I think it could just be happenstance in the providence of God. On the other hand, I don't really understand why we should be trusting world health experts when they're saying things like, we want to get them to the people who need them the most. Now, that's subjective. And when you consider that a lot of people on the left are moved by other things than facts sometimes, identity politics, for example, how would that actually play out? Would they, If you really had a pandemic that was crucially affecting everybody around the world. The UN gets to decide who gets what, when, and where. See, that scares me more than a virus. It really does. And there's a lot more to come. We're going to come back on Janet Meffer today, right after this.
From now through April, Janet Meffer today is partnering with Bible League to send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. You chose to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. If one person's life is changed by what I go through, it will all be worth it. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apa, Rit Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Now playing. More information is at IStillBelieveMovie.com. When I found out I was pregnant, I was devastated. I had no idea what to do. When a young mom faces an unplanned pregnancy, she's confused and scared. Society tells her that a baby is not a life and offers termination as the best solution. Preborn centers shine light into the darkness by offering young moms in crisis hope, love, and life, and an ultrasound to meet their preborn baby. As soon as I get there, I felt welcome. They gave me the first look at my baby by providing a free ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe, based on the real life true story of chart topping singer Jeremy Camp. I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, now playing. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. Well, I am looking into this story that's been making the rounds here in the last couple of days, and it has to do with an event that took place just a few months ago in October of 2019. It was called Event 201. It was sponsored by Johns Hopkins. The World Health Organization was there. The UN was there. You had the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You had Marriott. You had UPS. Yes, you had a lot of business leaders, health experts, and the whole purpose of this event was to say, what would we do if there was a worldwide pandemic and up to 65 million people died? How would we deal with things like the supply chain? How would we get antiviral medicine around the world and who would get it and who would distribute it? See, this is where it really gets a little creepy to me. Because I don't fully trust these people. Americans have always been fundamentally distrustful, and I think healthily so, of broad governmental power especially as it concerns the United Nations, because we've seen what has happened with the United Nations over many, many years. Why we're still a part of it, I have no idea. That's a subject for another time. But when you listen to some of the audio out of this event, to me, it reveals the ideology that concerns me more than whether or not these people truly were in on knowing if there was a coronavirus on the horizon. That's why I'm playing it for you, because I think it's interesting. Listen to this particular clip from Event 201. This is Cut 3. 
A global stockpile would certainly help ensure more rational and strategic allocation, but the reality is that we don't have the logistics capability, even within the UN, to bring that together in one place and run it. So this is where I think a collaboration between the international organizations like the World Health Organization and the private sector, which runs these supply chains for many purposes every day, understand where the supplies are, make smart decisions about how to allocate them to the people who need them in the places that need them the most, and then work with the industry to move those supplies from where they are today to where they need to be. Now, that was Christopher Elias from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And on the surface, I don't have any problem with that. You can't globally stockpile things. That's not really the most efficient way to deal with something like a pandemic. I actually agree with that. I think a global stockpile would be a nightmare because now you've got political interests and all sorts of other interests entering in, potentially, into the distribution of those um, supplies that people need around the world. He says it's a logistics problem. There needs to be a collaboration with the private sector. And again, I have no problem with the private sector being part of it. In theory, I don't disagree with anything that he said. What I'm concerned about and what I think many more Americans are concerned about is some of these big companies we don't completely trust either. How Do you, do you fully trust the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Microsoft, Facebook, Zuckerberg, any of these people who run these gigantic companies, Google, Amazon, do you trust them fully to get the supplies where they're needed the most? I mean, I, I'm, I'm just not sure that everybody is fully on the trust train here with these particular big companies. And it's not to say that there aren't good people there. And it's not to say that they wouldn't do good things. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist. All I'm saying is that the globalist perspective taints everything that I'm hearing in this particular event as you know something that should just kind of raise your antenna a little bit. Let's go on. This is cut four. The question is, can you, through this international mechanism, really promote commitments to doing this as quickly as possible and give people a sense that actually if they contribute more, that they will have a a better chance of protecting their own populations and their country's security and health. So to be completely clear, most uh, of this production would already be committed in contracts. It is almost unheard of that people are producing product without having a forward commitment for the consumption of that product. So the first thing that needs to be done, because this is not something that the countries currently control, and these countries are going to bring about emergency situations and co-opt an existing supply chain. I think it's not likely, I agree, that, that countries are not going to buy uh, buy a countermeasure to put into a global supply without retaining a large portion of it for themselves. Well, right. But see, that last comment there was from Stephen Redd from the United States CDC. Listen how these people are talking, though. Well, you know, it's not something the countries would control. Isn't that a problem? Isn't that a problem? If you're going to cede control to globalist organizations during a worldwide pandemic, I mean, granted, this was an exercise that was being done in October of last year. But listen to how they talk. And, and thankfully, in most cases where one person says something that's a little creepy, somebody else will chime in and say something a little bit more reasonable. But I just think it's interesting to watch it unfold or at least hear it unfold. You can watch it if you watch the video. Let's go on. This is Cut 5. How should national leaders, businesses and international organizations balance the risk of worsening disease that would be caused by the continued movement of people around the world against the risks of profound economic consequence of travel and trade bans. If there's some sense that there's a UN institution that can do all of this, then I I, I worry we're suffering from a delusional disorder 
on the power of the UN. Uh, it's really important to get those industries and their trade associations and a, an efficient leadership established, which is decentralized, at, but has a collective responsibility and accountability. And that needs to be supported by um, the public uh, leadership. All right. They have a collective responsibility. Now listen to this comment. This is from George Gao with the Chinese CDC. This is cut six. So the policy question for this board now is how should financial resources be prioritized? Are there nodes that we cannot allow to fail? What is your sense of priorities? We don't have money to pay for all of these urgent problems. So at the moment, we want the funds, right? You need the money. So where's the money? So government kind of supplies some money. A lot of, you know, private sectors, you know, some are sitting here. So you have some money. But now you need a really coordinated, centralized efforts. Oh, you need a coordinated, centralized effort because that worked so well in Wuhan. We really want the Chinese Communist Party to be involved in any kind of centralized efforts. Having any problem yet with globalism? You know, we, we seemed there's some Tower of Babel atmosphere, I would say, that I kind of impose on this discussion as I'm listening to it. Do you really think that you alone can solve every gigantic problem in the world? And what role does prayer have to play? What role does submission to the Lord play? What you know, what individual countries ought to be doing? All of these things are important. Now, this cut really stuck with me the most. Listen to cut seven. How much control of information should there be? And by whom? And how can false information be effectively challenged? And what if that false information is coming from companies or from governments? I think it's very important that we make sure that there is concise communication with all healthcare facilities where these patients are being treated so that there isn't mass panic. We're at a moment where the social media platforms have to step forward and recognize the moment to assert that they're a technology platform and not a broadcaster is, is over. Um, they, in fact, have to be a participant in broadcasting accurate information and partnering with the scientific and health communities mm-hmm. to counterweight, if not flood the zone, of accurate information. Because to, try to put the genie back in the bottle of the misinformation and disinformation is nigh impossible. One thing we haven't spoken about, and I'm wondering whether it's time to talk about this, is uh, a step up from the part of the governments on enforcement actions against fake news. Oh, my goodness. Enforcement actions against fake news during a time of pandemic. That was from a man serving with the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Well, let me give you just one quick example of something that happened yesterday. President Trump was on a conference call with the nation's governors discussing the coronavirus response. He had a quote on this particular conference call. The New York Times, some of its reporters put half the quote on the Internet. And here was the first half of the quote. He said, respirators, ventilators, all of the equipment, try getting it yourselves. And one in particular said, wow, the reporter, wow, how dare Trump tell these governors to get the equipment themselves. But the second half of the quote, they didn't include. Here was the second half of the quote. We will be backing you, but try getting it yourselves. Point of sales, much better, much more direct if you can get it yourself. So in fact, what the president was communicating was it will be much more efficient if you guys who are closer to your own local situation can get hands on the equipment that you need and certainly will be here for you. But in terms of efficiency, it would be more, 
I would say uh, efficient. I don't want to say efficient too many times, but it would be better for you to try to get it yourselves because you'll be able to get it more quickly and get it to the people who need it more quickly than if you solely rely on us. That's a completely fine response. It's the media that is lying, not the government in this in this case. So when these Event 201 participants talk about we need to control fake news. Well, what do you do when the fake news purveyors are some of the very people that might have been in the room or agreeing with your globalist ideology? Then you have a real recipe for disaster. And there's a lot of fake news out there right now. And it isn't coming from the president. That's probably one of the most disconcerting things of all. Keep on praying for this country. We'll see you next time on Janet Meffer Today.